Hello and welcome back to the Game Pit. This is episode 155. My name's Sean and here's my co-host, Ronan. Co-host and cousin. Well, I don't like to admit the second part. Beloved cousin. <laughs> I know you love me because you gave me a present, so that's okay. We're going to get to that though. Hello everyone, you're very welcome to the Game Pit. This is a podcast about modern tabletop gaming, board games and car games mostly. And we are going to bring you... Eight reviews of eight games, as usual, Sean, the old and the new. Looking through them, Ronan, there's some hits, there's some near misses, and there's some big misses for me. One of yours was good. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) I was speaking about old and new, Sean, and as usual, after we've done the eight reviews... We're going to talk about the games that have arrived into mm. our respective houses down in London and up in Birmingham, yep. and also a couple of Kickstarter projects we've been looking at. But that leads me seamlessly on to, there's a little phenomenon that sometimes happen, and we have to first say we're very lucky that it does happen to us. But quite often, one or both of us will back a Kickstarter, <laughs> and then the other one will end up with a review copy of the game. Sometimes before the person who backed the Kickstarter got the game uh, they paid for. Normally normally in your favour, that little one. <laughs> Only because, like, law of averages, you're going to have backed it on Kickstarter. And you were doing all the pit stop videos, so most of the stuff was going to you. Yeah, so I hope people aren't sending us games expecting pit stop videos anymore. Stop. They might start again, who knows, who knows. Anyway, the reason we're going to bang on about it quick is it was pretty funny that, um, as some people saw on Twitter and have spoken to me, Chronicles of Crime 1400 turned up at my doorstep <laughs> sean wasn't very happy when he saw my photo i probably probably was a bit a bit jealous when i saw your copy of it but i am absolutely excited to get my three copies of the various expansions uh, that are coming out for chronicles of crime because it's such a fantastic game yeah and 1400 plays uh, very similarly and I think you're going to enjoy it. It has a definitely a different feel to it in that, obviously, it's set in medieval times. There's slightly different influences because Chronicles of Crime is a lot about digging into a bigger picture as with many crimes, and you're trying to find out what the uh, conspiracy or what have you or the plot behind it all is. Mm. And in this one, medieval times, it's a lot to do with the power of the church and the power of nobles and the fact that sort of the peasants get, are not getting knocked around between them and they end up usually being the victims. And, you know, usually in Chronicles of Crime, when you get evidence you've got to go over and visit the forensic scientist or whoever it might be or the you know the database to see about criminals and stuff you still have that and that you've got family members you can go to but they'll give you much less specific information than you'd get from the scientists in normal chronicles of crime but what you do have is a pet dog okay and people know you they know that you're like this person who has visions and stuff and they know your dog and they recognize you from your dog and you can send your dog to smell things and they'll come back but you're getting information from a dog, so it's like a hint, or they'll turn to something, or they'll. You're not getting that sort of concrete-ish evidence you're getting in the first Chronicles of Crime, and I felt there's a bit more intuition into the play of it, which kind of falls into the idea that you're supposed to be having like sort of these visions and dreams and what have you, rather than you know as as clinical as a modern one is. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's pretty much what I hoped it would be just yeah not as much information like uh, as you said clinical information but yeah more more of a sense of things where, where you're going with the investigation so yeah yeah very looking very much looking forward to that Ronan yes good right I enjoyed it I just thought it was funny to mention that I got a copy that's all shall we crack on with some more reviews Sean yeah Ronan you are taking us back to school I believe <laughs> I always take you back to school 
<laughs> this the first game we're going to review is Alma Mater. Two to four players, 90 minutes to 150 minutes. I'm going to definitely point you towards the larger end of that uh, play scale. The publisher is Egert Spieler, and the designers are the four Italian designers who design games underneath the banner of Akitoka. And they've designed stuff like Egizia and uh, Terramara from last year. But other things well between them, there's some famous designs within that quartet. In terms of Alma Mater itself... Each player is running their own sort of fledgling 15th century uh, university, which is when universities were first starting up in Europe. I think it's meant to be set pretty much in Italy, where a lot of them were, but anyway, whatever. And during the course of this fairly hefty, fairly long Euro, you're going to be looking to make money in order to pay for books which will be produced for yourself. You'll pay to sort of print these books and display them, but also to buy the books of other players' colours. And then these books are like a resource within the game, and you'll be using them to get students to come into university, into your halls, in order to hire professors, and you actually set the price for professors in books, so you can make your books more valuable. And all the while you're doing this, your students and your professors give you special powers, and you're going to look to build up on a research track, which will give you various benefits as you go up it, but cost you some things and they will make your books more valuable for the next rounds getting those students and professors so it's all about this interlinking system of getting money to get books and making your books more valuable and comboing the various ways in which special powers are available to you the main mechanism of it is worker placement everyone starts with four workers four professors you can get up to six by doing various achievements during the course of the game and sean Straight away, the resources are tight and the worker placement spots are tight and it is a game that gives you a goal but definitely doesn't give you a clear path on how to get to that goal and you always want to have a little bit more. Yeah, so everyone kind of looks at the board and it can be quite daunting at first, Ronan, uh, when you see all these different cards, all these different students, uh, the professor cards and the student tiles all laid out and there's loads of iconography everywhere. But once you once you zero in on something, you only have those four workers, as you said at initially, to try and make your make your turn for this round click. And everybody's seeing the same thing that you are. So everybody's vying for those those few spaces uh, that are available on the board. And there's only I think there's only one or two spaces that everybody can go into. The others are all blocking spaces, so only one person can go in at a time, unless you have a special power. Straight off the bat, Ronan, I think it's it can be quite a mean game. What would you would, do? You think that it can be because you are blocking people off? I think it can definitely feel like you're being blocked, but because it is that tightness to it, you're not necessarily doing it negatively. It's very rarely, if if ever, in any of my games that I've gone, I'm going to that spot to stop Sean going there, just because I don't have the spare actions to do that. So I think ah, that kind of makes it sound like incidental blocking, which is sort of a thing that people see as negative, where I've gone somewhere and it's stimulated your plan. But we're all trying to achieve the same things, and it's a lot more about timing, and you have to be able to prioritise where you want to go, as in any good worker placement game, but then be able to be flexible enough so that, for example, if Sean does get into the space and recruit that one professor that I want to add to my tableau whose power would trigger off the student powers I have and, and the chance of the power I have and what have you, I have to be able to find ways to work around it, Sean. So it feels 
like it's blocking you all the time or the other players are blocking you, but I'm not sure it's ever very intentional and mean. Yeah, maybe. And I think we've also just got to stress that there is a way of sort of changing the the player turn order every single round. There's a, there's a certain space that you're going to go into and the amount of workers you place into that area and the order in which they go in is is key to who goes first in the next round. So there are ways to sort of say, okay, I'm not getting what I want this round, but let me let me make sure that I go first next round. Yeah, almost like a reset round. It never feels like you're doing like you're doing exactly what you want to do when you do that, but it can feel better than kind of dragging an anchor around behind you being last in turn order all the time. And Ronan, while we're on the subject of those, you said you started off with the four workers. There is the opportunity to, to extend that and you can get more workers into your tableau. And one of the things I really liked about the game, it, they're not set in in like one or two different places. They're, they're kind of There's rewards for going off in multiple directions, isn't there? Yeah, there are. And, and I think a lot about the game is because there's different sets of professors that will come out every turn. And one of the kind of cool things is that you do a start card draft so as a whole separate deck of start cards and you draft them and you get a chancellor and you look at what set of professors is available to you in this turn and player dependent there's different numbers of professors and then you're almost kind of plotting your own path through it sean and you're trying to look ahead and you're, you're trying to see what my tableau might look like in three turns time. In doing so, I, that's where I'm going to try and get my extra professors from. And it's putting this together every time while under that pressure of the tightness that really leads us to be the, a real brain-bending Euro, but not brain-bending in terms of multiple steps to get anything done. Because every time I put down a worker, I felt like I was achieving something. It's linking those achievements all together to find your own path each game. Can I just move on to one of the areas in which I really, really enjoyed this game? And that's the interaction between between players. Now, you mentioned in your your quick um, summary of the game at the beginning that we are kind of using each other's books to to achieve different goals. So when you're when you're trying to get a professor or a student, you have to ha- have to have books of all the colours really to be able to obtain them to get them onto your tableau. So I'm very much looking at what you you've got on your tableau, Ronan. If you've got the red books, I'm looking right. I need some red books. I'm going to have to buy them off Ronan. It's going to give him some some money for the next round. It's going to give me a slight a bonus as well. And and we're all interacting and we're all watching what each other has on the on their own sort of personal player space. For sure. Also, one of the really interesting things is the timing off, anticipating when the other players are going to refill their books. Because if they refill it, sort of go after you've expected them to, suddenly, again, that will knock you off course. And if they refill and you don't have the money, but another player does, and they're able to buy those cheaper books off them, you know, and, and, and there is a lot of looking at each other of, okay, you've got loads of money, you're ready to buy, you've got loads of money, you're ready to buy. If I refill now, I'm going to get money straight away if you, get, if you buy these books. And there's also a nice thing that, when you're buying your own colour of books, you can choose to refill this sort of display area you have so that other players can buy them and you'll make money. But you're going to have to keep some as well because you need to spend your own books to do stuff and it's cheaper to get your own books, but there's a limited amount of books you can get. So there's another decision of how many am I going to sell, how many am I going to keep, and that can that can turn your mind over in different places. And if that wasn't enough, Ronan, 
then you'll probably remind me of the track on the left-hand side of the board where you're sort of working your way up the top and it's um, whoever's got the most valuable books, whoever's the, the highest on that track, then that becomes massively important to get in the students because whoever's got the most valuable book, you are almost always going to need their book to get a student, no matter what student you're going for. So that becomes very important as well. And it's funny that that research track in your first couple of games, you're looking at it going, you know, this. It's, so the research track also changes in every game. It's a set of tiles that you can mix around. You're looking at it going, oh, has anyone ever get to the top of this? But by game four or five, you are vying on the top one or two places going for it. And it's also funny that it depends how much people are going for that research as to how valuable racing up the research track is because to have the most valuable books is very important because people will always be after your books but if you and natalie aren't bothering going for research then there's a limit to how much i want to go for but then you might race ahead of me for the vital last rounds and again it's another thing where you're watching each other what you do definitely impacts on what i do which is something that this game gets right 100 sorry i'm hijacking your your game here another thing Again, with that track and... and uh, just one more thing, Colombo, go on. <laughs> just one more thing. The player count. Now, I don't know if you've managed to play a two-player game, but we found when we played the two, you play with a dummy player, and that track, the dummy player, goes up almost every single round by one or two spaces up that, up that uh, research track. So it's a massive decision and it completely changes the focus of the game because you know the dummy player shooting up there now, do you keep up with them do you concentrate on others you, again you're watching the other player but still it's very focused on that track so i'm going to say that uh I, you're our two-player expert so i definitely chose not to play at that <laughs> and not that i didn't have the opportunity i just i was giving you your time and like no i played three player i played four player how, how did the dummy player work overall? I know you said he shot up the research track. I'd say to you that in games where you've, players have played a bit, everyone's shooting up the research track more than in the first couple of plays. So I, I think the balance of that will change as you get more used to the game. But how did you find the dummy player in general? Well, in general, because what, what happens is the dummy player will block two or three areas off the board at the beginning of the round. So now the dummy player also brings out a very few amount of books onto their bookshelves. So if, as we found, the dummy player is likely to be top of that sort of food chain in the research track, their books become absolutely vital because there's so few of them. So it's the timing of when you buy their books, making sure that you've got money to buy their books. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to get those big professors to like towards the, they're going to score you the loads of points at, uh, towards the end and the really expensive students or any students at all from the second round on once you need that first place book. So we found yeah, that was that was absolutely key. And it, it changed the game slightly, but it didn't didn't worsen it at all. We found it just gave us different challenges. I found that out of the three or the four player i really preferred three player because you needed every other player's books everyone needed every other player's books mm. so every bit of movement or buy-in or about mattered there wasn't a thing of all oh, right well sean sold his books i'll just take rachel's that's fine because i just need one of their twos when you play three player or right, every book counts which kind of sounds like that way in two player as well yeah so but four player works fine there's nothing wrong with it, but I'd say three players were my favourite of the two. Okay, we have to go to a couple of negatives, Sean. The, there are some. The iconography 
and the overall fiddliness of the game. The iconography can be difficult. They've gone for a language-independent game, and I have made mistakes in terms of confusing what triggers of getting students, what triggers of getting professors. It tends to be that almost every sort of... Up the research track, someone's going to have to tell you each time, that's what that means, that's what that means, that's what it means, until everyone gets very used to it. With the chancellors, like I say, everyone gets a chance at the beginning, but there are more chances in the game. And by achieving certain things, you get access to the other three chances in the game, which will give you more bonus power. So you're becoming more and more powerful as this game goes on. And there's just the like, the attempt to cram all this interaction into a language-independent set of icons became a bit busy for me. 100%. As I said earlier, you, you are very daunted when you first look at that board or that, that sea of icons staring at you. Yeah, we've, we've, we've made mistakes ourselves. Um, the shuffling along of the bookshelves um apparently you're not supposed to flip them back over once they come off uh, we we thought you that's right yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's yeah there's lots of things there that you are going to make a few mistakes along the way and i think you found in in one of your games it kind of ruined the game for you because you've been doing it wrong all, all through the game but um oh i cheated you through cheated. My well, i didn't want to say that <laughs> yeah that is definitely what happened oh i'm a huge asterisk and it is, it is very fiddly in terms of the working parts you're sliding things along the books are quite fiddly and you've got to get lots of different colors of them yeah so yeah it it can be a slight barrier to entry but i think we're both going to say in a little while that it's worth it scratch the surface of this game and you're going to find the DNA of the designer's other work, like Lorenzo El Magnifico, like Coimbra, like Grand Austria Hotel. And being familiar with those games, I think, is definitely going to help you ease into Alma Mater. Because once you get past the iconography, it's not, I'm not saying mechanically it's very similar. It's, it's not a rip-off, it's not a remodeling. It's, it's completely its own game. But the DNA underneath it of it's hard to get this stuff. I need to focus where I'm going. I need to make my own plan. You can see it from those three. Yeah. But as well as that, they have reused some of the artwork from Coimbra. Yes, they have. Yes, some of the characters are the same, aren't they? I don't care. <laughs> what are your thoughts? Don't care. <laughs> I, it, it was only because I, I watched a review that said, oh, look, yeah, this is the, this is the same dude from Coimbra. Like, is it? All right, fair enough. All looks good to me. <laughs> I think it is worth noting as well that every single character in this is a, a Caucasian-skinned character. Yeah. And that also has been flagged up as an issue. It's been fed back to the publisher and whoever else might need to know about it. And I, I think disappointing at best. Yeah, in this day and age, you, you, would, you would hope for some diversity. Um, I think a lot of publishers are making that effort to, to do so. I'm pretty sure it was something that was just a mistake. I don't think there's any intention behind it. But yeah, definitely need to see more diversity in these games. In this in this theme of the sort of renaissance of education in Europe, uh, in terms of like the obviously Western education is based a lot on the classics and what have you. Mm. Well, those classics were only preserved in the in the Islamic world. <laughs> So you definitely didn't have only white people at these universities. They had to go and learn and relearn their own history in order to build up with these universities themselves. So I don't want to hear anything about any historical accuracy and that nonsense. Then you don't really know what you're talking about when it comes to how the racism and education restarted up again and got out of under the control of the church. So anyway, that's my soapbox. (laughs) You kind of said already that you really like it. I love it, Ronan. You love it? I love it. 
we we went down to visit yourself and Rachel when you were having your little week away, and you were just chilling out and uh, in the where were you? The Melvin, the Melvin, the Melvin Hills. That's right. And yeah, we played this one. And on the way home, I said to Nat, "You know what? I really want to get that game. I know Rona's got it, but I really want it." And normally she's like, "Oh, shut up, Rona's got it." She bought it. <laughs> so as a present for me, granted, but she bought it. She she wanted it herself. So we we really enjoyed it. The interaction, as we've talked about, I, I love the look of the game. Yes, it can be a bit daunting. The chance to really ramp up the... We didn't really talk about the big end of game scoring, right? And, and you, you can really sort of hedge your bets and as you like to do, that big come from behind victory. And again, really, really interactive interesting thought-provoking game and it's got little tiny plastic books that are really cute (laughs) it's like worker placement plus it's like this is what you do when when you've played a few worker placement games this is the one you go to go every placement counts there's nothing meandering in this game there's nothing that's going to take a while to develop there's nothing where if i do this you'll get payoffs but you'll also get immediate response to what you do and every placement from the other players counts and every time they go to a professor for example this is one of the interactions when you buy a professor you have to pay in books but the color of book that you pay most of whenever anyone else goes and gets a copy of that professor to use their special power and something can be amazing you set what book they have to spend so if I set it to my colour, if you ever want to use that professor and get your own one, you have to come to me for books. And it's that sort of thing where the players are controlling how they interact that makes it, for me, Sean, a strong, strong contender for top 10 of 2020. And I feel like next summer when we do our roundup, I imagine this is going to appear in both our lists because it. I knew you loved it and I love it. And it is only improving with plays. Very good. Well, strong words there. Strong words, sir. I stand by them. <laughs> now now we're going and we're going to join the, the wave of Roland rights that uh, are hitting the market. I was sceptical at first, but a few of them are now creeping into my collection. I've got Cat Cafe. I've got Welcome to Dino World. We talked about Welcome To in one of the previous episodes. And this one is Rome and Roll, a 2020 release designed by Nick Shaw and David Tursey and coming from PSC Games. The whole thematic side behind this is you're helping to build Rome up and you're going to try and win the favour of the Emperor as you do so. And in the game, you're going to play as a specific character, which is going to give you a different setup and various boosts in in different areas. In front of you, you've got a, a dry whiteboard, which is your own player board. And in the middle of the table, you've got another dry whiteboard, which represents Rome. And it's a series of grids. On your turn, one player is going to roll a big bunch of dice. And the number of dice is going to give everybody two dice with one left over. And each player is going to choose a die at a time. And then once everybody has two dice, then you're going to take turns in using those dice. And on them, they have resources like wood and stone for building various things in Rome. And you've also got workers on there. You've got a legionary, a builder, an architect, and a merchant. And this is either going to allow you to do an action or to make an action better. Now, what are the actions? So you've got construct. This is probably the main part of the game. You're going to build on the map of Rome itself. And what you're going to do is you're going to draw in your colour the shape of the building that you choose. And to choose a building, you're going to move your foreman 
around on a set of cards which are randomly placed at the beginning of the game so there's going to be different ones for each game and you're going to build that building and you're going to do it in the shape that it, it states it needs to be if you're adjacent to another building it has a mutual benefit both of you get something out of it another action is raise legions and this is essentially activate any military buildings that are already placed on the map and that's going to allow you to get soldiers why do you need soldiers because a further action is conquer and this is going to allow you to spend soldiers to set up forts in lands away from rome and these are little boxes at the bottom underneath the city expand you're going to build roads to those forts and all of these things that i'm talking about i'll just waste the score points and last up, you have trade, which you are going to spend the resources that you gather that you haven't used for other things to gain coins. There are advisors in the game, and these advisors are different for every player. So on your player board, you have three advisors, and each of them has a, an action or a boon that you can activate by spending goods, and they're going to give you a special power going on through the game. That is what you're doing each round. So you're trying to build up the map of Rhone, Rome, Ronan, and you are trying to piggyback off each other. You're also trying to expand your own tableau, your own sort of dry whiteboard to score, just to score as many points as you possibly can. There's various tracks. There's a building track. There's a money track. There's, there's a, a soldier track. Uh, you, you carry on this way until one player is declared the winner of Rome and Roll. Ronan. I will start off with a negative. I found after a few turns of this game, Ronan, it becomes very repetitive. Now, I've gone through the whole thing about picking up the dice, rolling the dice, choosing two dice, spending them one by one. That just... You've gone through it twice now. <laughs> that in <laughs> itself is just so repetitive... And it doesn't change throughout the game. All right. Now, the fact that you didn't say Roman right as your first negative means you've got this whole review wrong. <laughs> so we're going to have to re-record, all right? Roman roll is not the friggin' name this game should have been. It should have been Rome and right. Roman right. <laughs> You're not the first person to say that to me. No, I'm not. It's kind of obvious. Okay. Here's the reason why it gets repetitive, Sean, because there's about 47 symbols on each face of the dice, which makes the drafting really not that exciting. Because when you're looking at nine dice in front of you, you're like, oh my God, there's 28 wood, there's 42 stone, there's 37 legions. I just, I just, it doesn't, I'll just take one of these eight dice that has the same symbol on. They have too many symbols on the sides. <laughs> That's my next point, is that they, you're never wanting for anything. You've, you've almost always got an architect. Oh, you are wanting for some things when you play the game, but it's not what's on the dice face. <laughs> Alcohol, drugs. <laughs> a book. <laughs> so we're going to go on to another negative runner. So it's a strange start to review. Uh, we're going we're to we're start with the negatives, okay? The board itself in the middle. Unless you're up there with a ruler and you're very, very neat and tidy, that whole board becomes very messy very quickly to the point where you can't really see nor do you care but you can't really see <laughs> what what the hell is going on on the board the colors blend into each other the there's squiggly lines here and straight lines there and you're like is that one is that is it is it what is yeah 
And the problem therein is that every time someone builds something, the location of it really matters for the rules and it can trigger off certain things and it will be better if it's next to certain classes. And who owns that one again? And what's that one? And what have you built? And it's all done in like this arcane lettering system whereby, oh, and the plaques that tell you. So this is an MV building. What's an MV building? The writing <laughs> on all of the components is so small, Sean. <laughs> I don't know, because like, everyone needs to know what the buildings do, and there are like you know several buildings in each game, and you do have to know what triggers and how many of those have been built, and who owns this one, and and is this a market? So if I put this next to that, I'll get extra things. But then am I helping you win the game? And what does this do? And it doesn't help you. Not only the map that you're drawing on, but the guides are tiny, and there's no need for them to be. It was it was part of my sum, summing up of this game, but I think it feel I think I feel the need for it to come out here, Ronan. This game shouldn't have been a roll and write. This game should have had little, I don't know, little buildings or cubes to go in as the different buildings. It should have been like a visually easy thing to see what's next to you. And then you could... It's why it's called Roman roll, because there's so little write in it. But there's so little write because, A, you're not going to write very often. But secondly, you don't want to, because every time you write a building, it's 10 minutes of working out, oh, Jesus... (laughs) What does this do now? Oh, hang on. Oh, How hang am on. I going to get my person across there to get there to do the thing to get the triggers off your what? Have, do you have fish? Do you have anyone here have fish? I need some garum. Are you togas? Are you short of togas? What do I, if I build this here, you get 82 togas. I get what? I don't, I've already maxed out that track. Like, there's no point me putting this building down because I've already scored. You can max out the scoring tracks. <laughs> Easily. Easily, yeah. And the amount of times I've, I've reached over to put my building in and come away with somebody else's building attached to my hand. <laughs> so hang on and the game box and the chair so alright so I'm going to trigger this building because it's physically attached to me now so I'm triggering it <laughs> mine now mine Dave <laughs> alright so you can max out the, the, you can max out the thing so then certain actions become absolutely useless to you because you can't score any points on them and then they give you gods that make that maxing out easier thanks mate that's <laughs> just okay I can't do that for the next they two give, thirds they of the give game. you gods that you can keep for the whole game and not use if you if you see fit. So mine, you, mine. <laughs> you'd say right, none of these benefit me, but I'll just keep them anyway. All right, cheers for that. <sighs> right, there's the thing easy where you go down and you can like build your outposts and you and you build your roads, and it's it's like one of the tracks you score points by doing this. Yes. So there's a good job, Sean that there's different sides of that player board for different player counts. <laughs> well, there's the two player and there's everything else. <laughs> right, yes. Yeah, so, so the two player thing of those of those regions you can go out into must be much, much smaller than the four player version, right? Um, no, 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 it's exactly um, the same, Ronan. It's exactly the same. Exactly the same, that's right. <laughs> it works two player. Well, this works two-player, so we'll just keep it for the four-player version because it works two-player, so th- then that will be all right. Did they playtest this game? I'd like to think they didn't because it wouldn't be a roll-and-write. It absolutely wouldn't be a roll-and-write, and they'd have worked out that, actually, that part of the game is nonsense because it's just going to be over way before the rest of the game, which is still meandering on using the same thing over and over again. To the point where you don't care what people, but just do your do your turn quickly. Just do it quickly. I don't care what you do. <laughs> Start off getting excited to draw the buildings, 
And you go, oh my God, this is incredibly painful. How else can I score points? Oh, I score points with these tracks. Oh, I've maxed them out. How else can I score points? These maps, oh, they're full. Oh, shh. I've got to go back and draw. Just to finish the game, everyone, we have to draw buildings. So everyone, just come and draw some buildings. You've forgotten about the individual characters that that absolutely drive your game and you feel like you're that character. I didn't. The merchant gives I just you, didn't want to talk about this game. The anymore. merchant gives you two extra resources at the beginning of the game. Amazing. Amazing. Great. Thanks, thanks for that. Roman Roll Sean. Did not work on any <laughs> level whatsoever. <laughs> Alright. I've heard people say they like it. I just presume that they're brainwashed by liking anything that's got dice in or wherever it might be. It's got light mechanics which are incredibly fiddly. It's got really heavy rules with really light mechanics. It's got a Massive lack of interaction in most of the game with a massive amount of interaction on the writing bit, which makes it an incredible pain. And it takes ages to build things once there's a few buildings on the board because they all interact with each other, but not in any interesting ways whatsoever. The scoring's rubbish. Some of the tracks max has out. It's fiddly. It's long and light and fiddly. No. You didn't mention it was fiddly. Oh, so, so I, I bought this game based on a lot of people's reviews, and people were absolutely waxing lyrical. Oh, it's one of the deepest, th- most thought-provoking Roland writes out there. Oh, really? So it's it's proper board game now. No, none of this like light Roland Wright stuff. Proper, proper. Didn't buy it actually. I traded it. I swapped it with somebody. I played it two-player a couple of times with Nat, and we both thought, well, you know what, that wasn't a good experience. We didn't enjoy that. It, it was a bit messy in the middle. It wasn't... It, it just, Yeah, it, it lingered on a bit. But we both looked in and said, that this is going to be better with more players. I've never been so wrong in all my life. All more <laughs> players does is makes it me- more messy, more fiddly, and longer. To the point we took it again. This was another game that we played when we came down to visit you guys. And... But for Rachel saying, no, I, I don't finish games early. We'll finish it to the end. We'd have all walked away from this before the end. And that's not, I don't think, I don't think, I, I can't remember the last time I walked away from a board game before the end. That's the that's the measure of Roman role for me. I'm sorry. I really didn't enjoy it at all. Okay. We had a strong start. <laughs> We'd have a weak second game. A massive dip. <laughs> this game could be the most interesting in terms of opinions we have because it's we're coming at it at a lot of different angles and this game was marched onto the scene with a lot of baggage and I I've found it hard to unpick the baggage away from Castles of Tuscany Stefan Feld 2 to 4 players 15 minutes per player genuinely the publisher is Aaliyah Sean Castles of Tuscany is not Castles of Burgundy Redux. You, see, you reckon? There's an awful lot that it does feel like Castles of Burgundy. It's related to Castles of Burgundy. Definitely, obviously, aesthetically, they've gone for the same thing. There are relations between the two games. Strong relations. Strong but relations. To approach Castles of Tuscany, expecting Castles of Burgundy, expecting the depth the length and the weight of that game is not going to do Castles of Tuscany any good. A hundred percent, but I don't think I expected it to be Castles of Burgundy. I expected it to be an evolution of Castles of Burgundy. 
And I don't. I think it's more of a devolution of Castles of Burgundy in some. I think ways. it's more of a juice, more <laughs> of a reduction, more of a more of a, a thick gravy. No, it wouldn't be a thick gravy. It would be the steam of the reduction of. Anyway, it's a lighter version, taking some of the elements of Castles of Burgundy and adding a little twist of its own, and creating a much shorter, lighter game, which was, on first impressions, a disappointment because I wanted a second Castles of Burgundy. I don't know what I wanted, but it, it wasn't this. And it wasn't, as I said, it wasn't the evolution of Castles of Burgundy that I wanted to see. I wanted to see more clever ideas. And I'm not saying we didn't get clever ideas, but Did deeper. you want Castles of Pokemon? <laughs> I wanted to see deeper ideas i wanted to see like expand some of those things they rather than sort of curtail them and twist them and put them into a slightly different form so yeah i was massively disappointed with my very my first play of castles of tuscany and it took me quite a while before i wanted to jump back in ronan from there the plot thickens <laughs> and i don't know what the ending is okay how do you actually play Castle of Tusky now that we've tried to get past some of the baggage? You're drafting tiles. There's always eight available to you in the center. And you're going to take them and place them onto your board. Your board is modular. It has got um, three separate tiles of 15 hexes on each, which you can rearrange in a certain limited way. And they have hexes on them. A certain number of hexes will always be the same for each player of particular colors. So you'll always have four grays, which relate to your quarries. You'll always have three dark greens, which relate to your castles. You'll always have three reds, which relate to your towns. And you can hear that some of these terms and colours are the same as Castles of Burgundy, and some of them are different. If you are familiar with that game, I will stop referring back to Castles of Burgundy at some point, but not yet. So you're drafting these tiles to place onto your board in order to trigger the powers of each of the different colours of tiles, in order to fill up the separate areas of colours to score points. And you're doing it over the course of three rounds. And as you score points there's a point at which you finish a round and everyone as those points their total but their running total stays the same with the points they score and then you go to the second round and you've added to your running total and then you add them on does that make any sense sean does it make any sense am i talking yeah, yeah if i was getting talking. 10 points in the first round i'd score 10 points if i added 20 points in the second round i'd be on 30 i'd add that 30 to the 10 that i scored in the first round so the earlier points accumulate and you're really trying to get ahead and get yourself going. Okay, in terms of what you actually do on a turn, there are three things you can do. You can draft a tile and put it in your holding area. You start with one holding area for a hex, so you're limited in how many you can keep. You can place a tile as long as you play cards, two cards that match the color of that tile, two cards that match become a wild and there's other ways of getting workers which can replace cards but basically you need to play two cards of a color to put a tile into play it must connect to tiles that are ready in play on your board and every time you place a tile down it's going to trigger a special power for example orange will get you workers which can replace cards your quarries will get you marble which will allow you to take extra turns. Your green castles will allow you to take a tile from the center. As I said, there's always a display of eight and immediately place it without playing any cards and trigger that one. Your blues will get you these blue hexes, these little wooden pieces, which are wild, and you can put them on any color as long as you have the cards to pay for them, and so on and so forth. In order to get the cards to pay for these to go down, the third action you can do on your turn is to draw cards, and you simply draw two cards, and whatever color you get is the color you 
get Sean. So what did we get in Castle Tuscany? Hopefully from that description there, you're getting the idea that this is a quick, small, tactical game in which you are reacting to what's available, reacting to what you draw from the card deck, and attempting to combo up in a clever way to get as many of your tiles out as possible because everyone starts with 21 tiles as soon as someone's used seven and every time you take a tile from me to replace it one of your own that's the end of the first round next seven in the second round next seven is the end of the game is it that quick though ronan did you find it particularly quick i don't think we played this as much as much as yourself and i've only played it two player but we i think we were cracking into about about the hour have we not played it together no we haven't no oh i thought we had We've we've got it to the, about the hour mark in our in our plays. Two player an hour. Yeah, f- about fifty minutes to an hour. Bro, two player. This is half an hour done. Oh, okay. That's gonna. That's basically my my whole summary ruined. <laughs> 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 yeah, we we didn't we didn't get out. We we found found about an hour, about fifty minutes maybe, if I'm being more accurate. But getting on for an hour. So yeah, and that's it. You got nothing else to say about the game now. I've just killed you, haven't I? Yeah, no, you have. You killed me. You ruined it. You ru- you've ruined my summary. Uh, the way we've been playing it is around these other games that we're reviewing. So after a game of Almeida, we play Castle Tuscany. Uh, the other games we're looking at, like, like Jaws of the Lion. Mm. Play a game of Jaws of the Lion. Oh, we've got forty-five minutes left. We can get in a three-player game of Castle of Tuscany in forty-five minutes. Cool, let's do that. It is. Uh, I think it's a workout. You have to roll the blows a bit. You have to play smart to win, but you can get a little bit unlucky. And you will be developing slightly different ways to go every time you play, is what we found. The main thing for me, um, the main thing that I sort of took away from Castles of Tuscany Rodan, was I felt that I was being sort of almost, it was almost dictated to me how, how high I had to score in each round. There was no holding back or building up or... Or build, like turtling up and building up your resources to have that one big move. You have to keep ticking along that track. Is it the green track, the outer track? Yeah, so you score green points and they'll score at the end of every round, and they'll add to your red points, which is your actual time. That's right. Yeah, and you, if you get left behind in that, it's, get there probably is ways of doing it, but I certainly couldn't see any. Once you, once I got left behind on that track, I kind of knew that I was struggling in the game. I think you can make up definitely make up ground in the second round because if you've set yourself up to for example finish a um a a three space area you're going to score six points if you can do that and finish off also same again because burgundy if you cover all the spaces of a color you get a bonus scoring and the first person to do it gets more points than anyone else would do it subsequently um if you can tie that in with getting some of the bonus scoring you can score 10 points of the tile it's possible Mm -hmm. in fact it's possible to score more and if you're spending your first round setting up those plays, then that's cool. The problem you have in the beginning of the game is that because you're setting your own modular board, in order to make these three space areas, you have to be aware. It's, it's, they won't happen by chance very often, and they can't happen in every colour. So therefore, you're looking at your modular board and you're setting up going, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to do a high scoring second round here, and this is what I'm going to try and go down the line off. Now, fate might interject and someone else might draft the colors that you need when you're trying to get them because you can hold so few but it's possible to do it with more familiarity with the game and the other thing that i i kind of found was uh, and i think you touched on it briefly there for a moment 
is that you kind of do have to roll with the punches in terms of what cards you get in your hand. There are way, ways to mitigate it, and with the with the orange tiles that give you the workers or storing up extra tiles so that you've always got that sort of choice in what, what you're going to sort of lay next. But I, I found that it, 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 certainly initially, I started working it out the more I played the game, but certainly initially it felt like if I was unlucky with that card draw, I, I, I struggled a little bit again. One of the things you said, though, is that initially you feel like that and it probably feels luckier. And this game has definitely been a grower on me. Now, I, I'm kind of been cast into a role here of defending it completely. <laughs> I'm not in love with it. But the fact that after then the more players, you're like, oh, actually, I could do this. I could do that. I could time when I get my workers. And when you play down the red tiles, the, the towns, they give you a bonus down the side. There's five different ones to choose from. And some of them will make your orange tiles more powerful and you'll get more workers per orange tile or more marble per quarry or be able to draw more cards each round or be able to st store more than one hexagon. The last one's be able to draw more yield cards with your roads, but whatever. Your timing off and your use off the bonus tiles then becomes something that becomes more important. So then now you're going to... Actually, I'm thinking about the way I set up my map because this is important as to where I'm going to try and go down. And now my use of my bonus tiles is another thing I'm thinking about, which I can adapt a bit during the game, but I need to set up some idea of this is what I'm going to try and do. If I'm going to build up my quarries, I don't want to, or my marble production, I don't want to put any quarries down yet because I want to wait till I've got two or three marble production down and then start using my quarries. That'll give me a bunch of extra turns. Mm. But I need to set my map up so I'm not blocked off by quarries that I can continue playing until I get to that point. And it kind of links back in. Now, it's not deep decisions, but it does all tie together. And I know I've been talking for ages, but just quickly, we actually played this tonight. Ellie was, I said, Ellie, do you want to play a game? She went, I oh, could play something we know. Could we play Tuscany? Yeah, cool. We got it out. She smashed us. What she did was she went for the bonus tiles that let you draw extra cards. She just drew loads of cards and was just spending those wild doubles. Yeah. So yeah. often she was spending four cards to put down a tile because she didn't care because she knew she was going to get more cards than us. And it was just like, while I was trying to get more workers and be efficient with cards. And, you know, it's, and you do see these things develop and that's why it's been growing on me. I think for me kind of boiled down to that initial disappointment i was hoping for a certain type of game and a certain type of progression from castles of burgundy and i i just didn't get that i don't think i ever got over that disappointment to the point where i really wanted to explore this game i think if this game came out on its own I'd be like, oh, that's a really interesting game. I love the way he's done this, and I love this and love that. But because Burgundy exists, for me, it just didn't click. And I, I kind of, throughout my games of this one, I was just thinking, you know what? An extra half an hour, and I could be playing Burgundy. And I think it's a, it might be a slight disservice to this game. There are elements that I didn't like. I didn't like the sort of being forced to sort of continually score and I didn't like the sort of randomness of the draw, but you've just shown like Ellie's actually made that work for her. So there, there, there is paths, there is ways to mitigate these things. But I, for me, don't think I want to find them. And I know you've got a copy, and I know you're still interested. Well, I hope you're still interested enough to to keep it in your collection and to keep plugging away. And I'll certainly come back to it and give it a game from time to time, and hopefully fall in love with it. But for right now. It's going out of my collection, and I'm going to probably have a game of Burgundy very soon. 
in your opinion, should they have called it something else? Yes, I think so. And maybe just tweaked up the theme a little bit, done so instead of like fields and sheep and the resources, I think in my mind that would have helped me get over that hurdle. I find it very hard to categorise. It's definitely grown on me. Definitely suffers by comparison. I have wanted to carry on playing it. It's starting to feel like a classic design, to be honest with you, because it flows, but there are different paths going on. I do think there's a certain lack of interaction. There's definitely a race to the goals, though. So that does, you know, you're going for the grey goal, you're going for the light green one. Am I going to get there before you? Probably not. I better go after a different one because they can make a big difference. I feel like it, I have to say it's a really good game because of this. Because still every game of it, when we think it's just a half hour, 45 minute filler, we're still finding new things after six, seven plays of, oh, you tried that. Oh, you tried this. I use your bonus styles. But it's all very small, small scale things are very tactical. So do you like the idea of a game that, at least for us anyways, between half an hour and an hour to play, depending on player count, uh, it's tactical. You set up a plan at the beginning and you're trying to roll the bowls, blows, but you're not interacting very much. If you do, and that feels very like an early 2000 euro to me, go for Castles of Tuscany. If you're expecting a, a proper full felled experience, this is not the one for you. Although foreshadowing, that one might be coming next episode. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Our next game in this episode is, is a little one that snuck up on me, Ronan. It kind of just appeared in, in the shops and I didn't know much about it. And it's Glasgow. It's uh, coming from the two-player range of Lookout Games, designed by Mandela Fernandez Grandon. And obviously we're set in Glasgow, Scotland, and we're merchants. We're going to be buying real estate and brokering contacts to rebuild 18th century Glasgow. And to set up this game, you're going to have a circle of action spaces with room to build a four by five grid of building tiles in the middle. And the rule now, I'm going to ask you a question, Ronan. Is that what's the name for that mechanism where you sort of push your luck on the on the track? Is there a name for it? I jump, you get <laughs> <laughs> the Ronan Rice <laughs> trademarked <laughs> mechanism. I jump, you get. So it's one where you move your meeple as far as you want around the circle and take that action, knowing that what you skip can and often will be taken by your opponent because you can't go backwards. The action spaces themselves are based on Glaswegian characters and they're going to give you resources. They're going to allow you to construct buildings and various ways to change things up a bit. The buildings themselves have certain scoring conditions there are factories that produce when another building is placed in the same uh, row or column. There's other buildings that are going to score your points at the end of the game for being adjacent or being in the corner or being in certain rows or columns. And that's pretty much it, Ronan. I, I think it's a simple push-your-luck mechanism. But what I will say initially, it didn't seem as punishing as some of the the other types. So we talked about Australia. We've talked about uh, Glenn Moore having that mechanism in it. It didn't feel as punishing as them. I mean, there's a really good reason for that. <laughs> Here we go. It's because a vast majority of those actions are done as ditch water. <laughs> 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 this is. I swear, this is true. I'm playing. I was playing Glasgow. We didn't play this together. We played it separately. Again, we maybe we've got different opinions on this, but 
more of my turns than should be in any game were spent looking and going, I don't want to do that, don't want to do that, don't want to do that, don't want to do that. Mm, that's okay. Oh, if I go to that, I'm going to give her those four action spaces. That okay thing in five spaces time is not worth the four things I'd give her. So I might as well just go one space and have something rubbish than something that's a bit less rubbish, but she gets loads. It's just... Oh, I found the actions were so similar and itty-bitty and one brick and one of them or one brick and one of them. Until the near the very end of it, I just was... No one was making any big moves because the, the actions weren't tempting enough to force the interest. Like, this is interesting, Glenn Moore, because you go, that is worth so much points to me. I'm going to jump ahead and let you guys play for 10 minutes because that's worth it. In Australia, I, I need to get this stuff out. It's going to cost me a lot of time, but I need to do this. In Glasgow, I never had that problem. Therefore, the whole central mechanism fell down for me. Uh, <laughs> Way to go directly into my thoughts. Uh, I, I disagree with that. I, I think for me... I certainly, it felt when, when you first start the game, like the very first two or three turns, I felt like, okay, I don't really want to push too far ahead because I'm leaving too much behind me. And yeah, there, there is quite similar things going on around, around that circle. But as the game progressed, when I sort of locked myself into wanting to get something out before Natalie or trying to beat her to the punch, then that's when our, our, our move started to get a little bit more grandiose and we were jumping three or four times. We never jumped like half half the ring, maybe the last turn of the game. Yeah, all right, I'm going to go right the way around to the one behind me now. But generally, it, it, it felt like a nice arc to the game for us. Now, I don't particularly like that mechanism when it's too tough and too punishing. So maybe that's where our sort of differences come in, is that I found it more appealing this way. Gentle. Gentle, yeah. I feel like that this mechanism has to be agonising or it's not being used to its potential. Yeah, okay, I, and I, I completely see that. And being not a fan of that mechanism in a lot of games, I found this a, a, a refreshing break from that sort of agonising choice. And I, th- I felt that's kind of what this game... I think you've come up with the, the right word. This, I felt that this is a quite a gentle game. There's a little bit of thought, a little bit of sort of where where shall I place this? What building type shall I go for? And obviously, once you decide that, you, you're going to have to get the right resources to do that. But nothing too stressful, and it plays very quickly. It's, it really did finish before we. Do you know started. what, Joe? What I have to say to you now: if in your summary you've got the words quick, <laughs> light, and gentle, strike them through. Try <laughs> because they, within themselves they are not positives for <laughs> quick, light, and gentle. I'd rather go for a nap. <laughs> okay, there's a reason this snuck up on you, by the way. Go on. Why? Is, what's that reason? Is it just it was rubbish and they didn't want to promote it? No, no, no. Nothing to do with that. It's because it looks so dull. <laughs> How would you ever notice it? It's just brown. It's just a sea of brown, brown tiles. It's the brown tiles with brown things on there. This is not... It's Clemens Franz artwork, man. This is not a good-looking game. <laughs> well, what's your, what's your glitch? It's fine. It, it looks Euro. It looks It looks like it every Clemens Franz game. It's dark brown everywhere, and it makes the buildings hard to, to differentiate. Oh, this is a dark brown brick building next to 
a dark brown brick building. Why am I like that? I'm just there, like, hey, my face is hey, like an inch on the board. There's some Which tan buildings what? and there's some orangey brown buildings, I'll have you know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Every shade of brown as long as it's brown, right? Yeah. Okay. I've got a final nail to put in a Glaswegian coffin, by the way. Go on, then. I played awfully at this game. I was trying to do different things over a couple of plays. I was like, all right, I'm going to try to do this. Didn't work. I'm going to try to do that. Didn't work. Okay. I'm forced to dibby-dibby round to collect things and then go, oh, I could be one of them. Great. Oh, Right. I'm awful at it. Every single game was within a couple of points. Even though I was terrible and she was playing well, it forces closeness because all the actions are so similar in value you're going to end up close to each other in points. Uh, what you're saying is it was an exciting finish. No, <laughs> because it was forced closeness. We we were going to end. Like every building scores such a similar amount of points. And the chances where you can like, oh, like you can read, if you put a whole big row of terraced houses in, this has got loads of points. It's so easy to block. You're just like, well, I'll just block that. <laughs> like, oh, ah. Also, not only I can put a terraced house in and, and score those points, so you're not going to make one because I can just nick them points from you. So the, the opportunities to, for creative scoring are just not there. Right, okay. I, I, I'm claiming the victory because I got you to squeak. I squeak a lot. <laughs> so go on, sum up for us, unless you have already summed up. Yeah, more or less. <laughs> okay. <laughs> The best thing about Glasgow is the weekend we spent in 2005 on the mad, mad tear with George R.R. R. Martin, and I won't let this game sully that memory. Jesus. There were some bad memories in there, like me, me, me trying to throw your bed out the window. That did, that did happen. That did happen. But I also drank a whole bottle of Baileys with George R. R. Martin while <laughs> boring him with my Song of Ice and Fire theory. And we, we, we made a random hotel manager cook us haggis in the middle of the night. We did do that. I remember also how drunk we were when we got made security for the uh, what are they, Hugo Awards or whatever they are. Oh, God, yeah. We were in good barely stand up when we were made security for it. We're not painting a very China good picture of ourselves. Okay, so for me, Glasgow was inoffensive. It, it's not groundbreaking. It certainly doesn't outstay its welcome. It probably won't stay around very long in, in my collection because I don't know how many plays I'm going to get of it. But I certainly didn't hate it as much as Ronan did. And I will enjoy a few more games of it. And damned by fake praise is Glasgow. I didn't hate it. Oh, you it sounded was, like you hated it, Ronan. It was too bland for me to give a damn about okay. it. Okay. <laughs> is that even worse? You tell me. <laughs> so... They're our first four reviews. We will uh, join you in a few moments after a, a quick musical interlude, and uh, we'll talk about four more games. Sean, there are very few people I could go to with this question, but you're a man, I feel, who has the sort of very rare insight into... When a man has reached the pinnacle of his life, where does he go next? <laughs> I mean, whatever it is you've been trying to achieve these years, wherever you've been headed, you've definitely reached the pinnacle of something. Well, the next pub or the next restaurant. Kebab <laughs> shop. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. So, my name is Isaac Childress. I am the designer of Gloomhaven, and I own several fair games. And I've got the number one board game in the world. What do I do? Uh, 
stay on that track and ready the second version of Gloomhaven and maybe a lighter version of Gloomhaven. Maybe, maybe. Get approached by Target and get asked to make a version they can sell for $40 in their stores and say, I oh, can that, do that is that, is that how it came about? I believe I so. I could tell. be rubbish. That could be absolute rubbish. But I think... <laughs> you might as well tell people what we're talking about, eh? Wow. If you haven't watched that, it's Gloomhaven. <laughs> I would do it. It's Jaws of the Lion. Gloomhaven, Jaws of the Lion. The new version of Gloomhaven. One to four players between 45 minutes and allegedly two hours per scenario. I'm going to say three hours, but, you know, whatever. Makes it happy. He took Gloomhaven, the number one game on Board Game Geek, a game that I rate a 10, I thought was fantastic, and he's attempted to make a more approachable version of it. And I think, really, the only interest going to be here to us discussing it is how well he's achieved that. And I'm going to start off by saying, in terms of making it more approachable, it is about 2,000 times more approachable, Sean. <laughs> Yeah, I suppose that is the big, big negative to Gloomhaven is just the the learning curve is so steep to the point where I learned it once. It took me a long time to do it. I haven't played it in ages, and now I know I'm going to go back to it, and it's going to take me like a whole day to learn it again. So I think that's probably... Don't go back to it. Don't go back to it. Spend the £40, buy Jaws of the Lion. It will teach you how to play Gloomhaven. It won't teach you a light version of Gloomhaven. It will teach you how to play Gloomhaven. So does it? I, I'm going I'm to be asking you loads of questions on this, Ronan, because I'm just interested in this. I got it. But let me pile in a couple of things first, and then I'll start right. taking your request. Right. <laughs> just to say, right, Jaws of Lion, as of when I just checked, is number 20 in the Board Game Geek list and has a rate average rating of over nine. There's going to be no spoilers here. Damn, <laughs> fool. It is. What he has done is absolutely remarkable. I cannot believe how well he's done this. Honestly, he's a genius. He's, incredible. he's a genius. Now, do you want me to give you a run-through of what is going on here, or you just want to start firing some questions? Uh, let, me, let me fire some questions, and if I'm not hitting the mark, you can tell me to shut up like you normally do. And, okay, uh, just I will do. Crack on. I might not even hit so, it out either. So using the elements, is that is that particular mechanism in the game, Ronan, where you're using the elements to boost things and help each other out and stuff like that? Well, I'll take you from that, Sean, okay? Okay. You do five scenarios to learn the game. You open it up, and he says, here you go, boom, boom, choose your two characters, three characters, four characters, whatever. Here is, it's in a ring binder book for the maps. Here's your map. Here's where you get from. In the first, I think it's the first three there are no elements because he's literally given you separate cards which gradually introduce the mechanisms for each of the scenarios. Nice. I like that. He's given you separate AI cards for the enemies so that you're understanding their basic behaviours. And then after you've done the first like three, maybe four scenarios, maybe three, those cards never get used again. They're gone. Like, there you go, that's how the basic ones work. You got your head round how monsters work, here's the full monster decks now. Alright. You start with your character, it's the same powers that you're gonna have in the full version of the character, but just simpler to use. And it's a smaller deck, and the whole scenario is set up to be quicker, and it's like you just got eight things to kill. Here's your cards, roll, this is how they work. Alright, scenario two, here's a couple of extra things. When you get to I think scenario four, could be wrong, elements are in there. When you get to scenario six, 
you are playing all of Gloomhaven. Mechanically, everything. I could take my Gloomhaven character and play it in Jaws of the Lion. It would fully work. This is not a light version of Gloomhaven. Hmm. Apart from the guff around the outside. This, <laughs> it, it, I mean, that's really what it is. And yeah, you know, I, I kind of say like those sort of things you're doing. You're not giving gold to a temple that takes forever to to level up. You're not good doing global achievements. You don't have a seven, uh, well, whatever it was, seventy something branching scenario where yeah, by yeah. you take a character forward, you retire it, you go back and start again. This just takes a character all the way through twenty five scenarios max, and you're done. You've done the whole story. So it's kind of trimming back some of those extensive legacy elements of the game. And focusing more on the character, would you say? Yeah, but I mean, the legacy <laughs> elements in it still has a map that you put stickers on that you unveil different locations. That's the one bit I do know about is that I'm, I, I am a man who has bought a Well, Hayden first bit's stuff. questionable. You're a okay. being. I am a creature <laughs> who has bought a Gloomhaven insert that I am roughly about. Mm, halfway building you've been halfway through this for like every year for the last three years <laughs> no, I, was, I was a third last year and now i'm a half anyway so that the reason i bought the gloomhaven insert is because the setup and takedown time of gloomhaven was incredible people were just saying to their family like no we're playing gloomhaven and the game is staying here we are eating off our laps for a week I, I see what he's done with the map. The book is the map, isn't it? You just open a new page and you're onto a new map and that's brilliant and you don't have to put tiles together and you have to add things in. And I think that, for me, is one of the major selling points of it. How quick is it to set up, Ronan? <laughs> the scenario maps, yes. They come in a ring binder, as I said. You open it up, there's a supplementary book and fairly often you have an extra page that slips on one side of... The, the book the main book you use it and it's there you just open it it's ready to go um the what i was saying about in terms of legacy elements was that there is a map of gloomhaven the city and you don't have any locations on it because you don't have any adventures and you get to add stickers to it to, oh we've unlocked that adventure we've unlocked that adventure there are you know legacy elements in terms of that there's also legacy elements in terms of leveling up your character that can go all the way through the levels and you get better deck and stuff like that and get more hit points and all the rest of it um, what you're talking about in terms of the setup time, there's still a little bit of setup because you, you go in the book, you're opening it up, you're finding the correct monsters. There are much fewer um, monster types within there, but I'm going to say there's still like 15 different, which is fine. That does the job. And they've all got their own AI decks, which means they're all going to behave differently. You can play the same scenario a hundred times and the monsters will behave slightly differently every time because that's how they're driven by AI decks. So to set up, I'd say, to get everything going and running and read right, what the rules of this particular one, what does that do, what does this do? 15 minutes, 20 minutes? Perfect, you're selling me, you're selling me. So my thought process when, when I've heard about this and you started it, talking about it to me was, I think one, uh, one of Isaac's, the only thing that kind of draws him back and we kind of found it in Founders of Gloomhaven is that he is so clever that sometimes he can let the design get away. Not get away from him. It's still a brilliant design, but it'll make it a bit more intricate than it needs to be. So maybe this project, if, if it is as you as you say it was, Ronan, that they said to him, yeah, we're like, yeah we, love, we love Gloomhaven, now make one that we can actually play. 
that it was a good experience for him. So I'm wondering if in the future now we're going to see more of that sort of simple, not simplistic, um, simplified elements to his games that he makes them a little bit more user friendly. And then I think you've got the complete designer. I think more user friendly is a much better word to use than simplified. Because okay, I'm going to say it like the final time. It's not simplified. There are very slight rule changes. Very slight. Push-pull works slightly differently. When you jump into an obstacle, you can do it. Uh, or difficult terrain, rather. Slightly different way the enemies focus. These are minor things. This this is Gloomhaven. Now, we can't say that that is 100% an improvement for every single person in the world. Because some of the appeal for some people, and I can fully understand it, is how epic Gloomhaven was. And the fact that it takes 70-something plays to finish. And the fact you're going to go through three, four characters, get them all the way through, retire, get a new one, start again, learn with your party shifting and changing and, and working things out like that. And, and I'm failing the whole massive sprawling story and how huge it is. That works for some people. And if you've got the time and the concentration, the ability to do that, I fully understand if that's intimidating, if you want the playable one, where you open, and I'm telling you, you open this box, you'll be playing a simplified version of Gloomhaven for the first three within 10 or 15 minutes. You'll just start playing, and it just tells you, and the rules are there, and there's actually rules w within the map that you're playing on. There's little reminder boxes and stuff about things. I think what you found in terms of with Isaac, because this was such a huge hit, who was going to be big enough to be able to edit him. It's like when bands get huge, when authors get huge, they don't get edited anymore. They don't get forced to go down. Who was big enough? If I'm right, Target were big enough. And that, as you right, rightly said, could have been a very, very good thing for him to say, take your amazing ideas, switch them into human, and let us enjoy what you are able to create <laughs> because you are an incredible designer. Absolutely. So last word from me on it, Ronan. Would you say that this is the Hobbit to Lord of the Rings? No. It is... Um, all the best bits of Lord of the Rings put <laughs> with bridging paragraphs between them. Without Tom Bombadil. <laughs> Who said he wasn't one of the best bits? <laughs> Me. A meandering yeah. fool. It's... it's all the essence of the experience without that. But obviously, you know, if you don't have all of the rings, you don't have a lot of the history and the exploration and the different areas and the hints of, of the bigger picture. And you lose some songs, you know? Yeah, so no, definitely not The Hobbit. For what he's attempted to do, this is perfect. And it's got me playing Gloomhaven again. And I paid 20 whatever games of the original one and whatever life got in the way and we had to reset our characters and, you know... <sighs> Back playing again amazing jaws of the lion if you've thought about playing gloomhaven you've been intimidated just go for it because he just leads you through by the hand all right uh, i'm just adding that to the christmas list as yeah. we speak. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> <laughs> okay so ronan it's it's another well not a roll and write it's a choose and write something like that i don't know on tour a 2019 release designed by chad deshawn <laughs> from board game tables they've really got to change their, their their name when they're designing games now and the theming behind on tour is that you're in a band you're going on tour 
and you've got to visit as many states or if you flip the board over as many countries or cities in Europe as possible. Effectively what you do each turn is you're going to roll two dice and you're going to combine the numbers in any order, i.e. a 4 and 8 can be a 48 or an 84. And doubles count as wild cards or stars. And there's going to be three cards in the middle of the table. And they're going to tell you where you can put the number that you choose, what region they go into and what part of the board you can put them into. And that brings us quickly to the end of the game, because the end of the game is all about connecting numbers sequentially and visiting as many states as possible. So when you do choose that number, you're putting into an area, you're choosing the state, and then you're going to draw a line at the end of the game, and whoever's visited the most states as possible and has the most uh, numbers sequentially is going to score the most points and win on tour, Ronan. Very simple. Almost too simple, Ronan. Fast, pretty, and straightforward, Sean. Fast, pretty, and straightforward. Is that what we're going with? I read it in the comments. I remember when you were talking about Glasgow before. This is what was fast, pretty, and straightforward. Um, and you give this what you got. You give it an eight or a nine out of ten for on, on that basis. Oh yeah, of course, of course. I think these people would love me. I'm all three of those things. <laughs> I'm going to say it right off the bat, right? It's too simple. I don't think there's any depth or cleverness to what you're doing. You're very restricted in what you can do. Yeah, you can go off on different sort of tangents to the other players, but that's because you're just choosing the numbers in a slightly different order. I'll tell you what. It is what I feared roll and rights were going to be like before I started <laughs> playing some of the good ones. Goodness me. Horator. It just feels scripted. It just feels like you you are forced down a path. You haven't really got any choices, certainly not any interesting choices. And that choice in itself reduces as time goes on. So, yeah, it gets a bit more exciting because you really want certain numbers to come up so that you can fit them in or certain cards to come up. But you you're waiting for those to come up. You're not driving that yourself. You're not in the driving seat. You're waiting for those cards to appear on the table. And I just felt like the arc of the game didn't didn't sit right at all. I had a couple of things that I'd mind from people's comments and stuff that I was going to try and like, you know, hook into and try and pull out some of your thoughts. But I feel like I don't really need to. And you've summed up. Do you want some questions or? It's, that's all I've do got you feel to say the about the game. Is that what, do you need a hug? I think I do. But I still have to say, but I think this review doesn't, in its essence, it doesn't need to be very in-depth because the game's not very in-depth. Well, screw so, you. I did my research. You're getting two questions. Oh, go on then. <laughs> A lack of player interaction, Sean. Discuss. Lack of player... Well, obviously, because you're, you're head down on your own board. I don't care what Natalie's writing on her board because it has... You probably made it harder to play if you were head down on your own board. <laughs> Is that was that the problem with there? That's why you could never play it. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to pick my head up again. <laughs> Not without scaffolding. Yeah, I I really only care to look up occasionally to see how well she's doing. All oh, right, you've got a chain of eight eight numbers. I've got a chain of six. So all right, you're in the lead. That's the only thing I care. I don't care what state she's going into. I don't care what area she's going. I don't care what card she chooses. 
I don't care what combination of numbers she chooses. So it's got very transvision vamp here. <laughs> I don't care. Okay. Hey? <laughs> no, that's a wrong song. That's a different one altogether. <laughs> Baby, I don't care. Anyway, missed, if you miss connections, you can fall behind and there's no way of catching up. And I wish I could say that in a way that makes me feel like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, well, obviously, if you've decided, right, so, if you, so let's say you've got the number 20 as, as one of your connections, you're building up that way and you've then decide, right, okay, I'm not going to bother waiting for like 22, 23, 24. I'm going to jump straight ahead to 36 because there's nothing coming out and the game, the end of the game is, is advancing. So yeah, there's no way of really jumping back and being clever and sort of going round and connecting that 24 again, because you've already sort of, You've made your bed now. You've got to sleep in it, kind of thing. Fair enough. I've got an issue. I really don't like music-themed games. In terms of this, like people keep trying to do it, where uh, you know it's a theme based on a band or managing a band. Or has it ever been done well? I don't think so. I don't. Just something. You know, for, for the lack of success in that area, it's just a theme people keep going back to. And I'm, I'm all for trying different things. But I honestly, the theme in this really is not present at all. You have I, I know, no but it's enough to put me off. It's like food and drink themes. For a man who loves food and drink as much as I do, I just <laughs> yeah, it's a coffee-making game. I'm just like, well, I start closing them. I don't, what? There's something wrong with me. <laughs> anyway, it's a, it's a no from me on tour. Well, it, it should have been a no from me. I bought it on the basis of this. the same company came up with QE, which I absolutely adored. And again, people I trust give it really good reviews and strong reviews on, online. So I've, I think I've got to adjust who I trust in this world, Ronan. Don't we all, Sean? Don't we all? And yet not fall, failing to cynicism and keeping some <laughs> useful enthusiasm about the human race, which has yeah. certainly been improved very slightly by the US election. Oh, Jesus, hasn't it just? Hasn't a it blessed just? relief. Oh, he's already... Mr Mr Biden has already pledged to go back into the climate change. Apparently. I know he has, yeah. Oh, thank God. A good man. He's got family from Mayo. Of course he's a good man. Ah, of course he's a good fella. Good lad. Set right. on his second ever Catholic president of the US. Is that after JFK, I'm going to guess? Yeah, there you go. So, um, going back to on tour, yeah, I was bored... It doesn't change from game to game. The theme doesn't come through. There's no cleverness or depth to your choices. And yeah, it it went, it went, and it it did trade. So this one I did manage to get rid of. This is Clank Legacy, Sean. A two to four player game. Each individual game taking 90 to 120 minutes. It is a legacy game, which plays over the course of, I believe, roughly a dozen games. I haven't quite got to get that mark yet, although I'm certainly ploughed into the campaign got to the second side of the board and done all sorts of fancy things and this is designed by andy clotice and paul denon from renegade game studios it is based upon the i'm going to call it a clank franchise it started as a deck building game a dungeon crawly thing where you're going in grabbing an artifact and trying to get back out again before you get eaten by the dragon your history and opinion on clank itself sean Clank itself, I thoroughly enjoyed my first couple of plays of Clank. I brought it into my own collection, and it didn't work so well two players for me and that. And, and yeah, it kind of lost a bit of its luster. 
and I did get rid of it, but I still I still like it, and I still like to play occasional games of Clank. So I'm definitely interested in this because uh, people are saying it's very accessible in terms of the legacy market. Stop stealing my hymn sheet. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I've written down it's a six and done for me. I played it a handful of times. Again, I bought it because I heard it was good and I liked deck builders and all the rest of it. And about six games in, I was like, okay, I've seen everything. I'm just running in, grabbing something and running out again. So I moved it on. And like you, I'd be happy to play a game of it now and then, but certainly no more than a game of it now and then. So I think it's a good game, which is why when Clank Legacy came out, I was not necessarily as excited the second reason why I wasn't as excited about it is because it has the Acquisitions Incorporated tag to it. What do you know about Acquisitions Incorporated before I start? Absolutely nothing. Okay, so I am certainly not the world's expert on it. I have vaguely come across it, and I come across it in the MMO Neverwinter. And it started as a podcast, and then it became live shows, and now it's a TV show, and it's a very arch look at D&D it's a very funny look at D&D but it's an arch look at it in that it's players have played a lot of D&D and now they're sort of playing with the tropes of it and they have these particular characters and they get in very funny situations now I came across it in Neverwinter and I just felt like it didn't fit into what's quite a po-faced D&D world so I didn't necessarily particularly want to encounter it within a board game but what it does within here is that you are running a franchise of acquisitions incorporated which is a company that runs within sort of this fantasy world and you're hired to go and do what you would do as an adventurer and find treasure and investigate problems but you'll be given contracts by the sort of central companies for you to fulfill and in fact there's other companies who are coming in to try and do similar things to you and they're rivals and it's all about working out the corporate structure and making money so it's it's sort of an overlay to give some some overarching story to what you're doing with Clank in a very sort of knowing way, if that makes any sense. Okay. <laughs> I thought I'd get an okay from that. <laughs> Moving onwards. In terms of gameplay itself, in Clank, you're building up a deck and, and you're playing down your cards and you use all your cards each turn and they're going to produce four different resources. There's the standard buy resource, it's called skill, which will let you buy more cards from a market of six, which will go in your deck and help improve your deck whenever they come out again. There's the fight resource, there's swords. Now, you might use these sometimes because you also generate movement in boots. And when you move, you move around the map and there's different routes you can go down and there's certain spaces that you would have to stop in. There's spaces in which you'll get attacked. If you have swords, you can not take damage or you can use your swords to defeat enemies that appear in the market because most of the cards in the market are for sale but some of the enemies that you can defeat and enemies can have ongoing things that can make the game harder the reason you're worried about health is is because the fourth resource if you like that you produce from your cards is called clank and that's noise that you're making and in effect you're putting cubes into a pool when you refresh the market from cards that are bought there are events that can happen but also certain cards will trigger a dragon attack when a dragon attacks, all the cubes that have been created from clanks, the more noise you've made, get thrown into a bag with a bunch of black neutral cubes. Shake them up, depending upon how far you are into the game and how annoyed the dragon is, you're going to pull out a certain number of those cubes. If your colour comes out, it is damaged to you. If ever you get up to 10 damage, you are going to be out. In terms of moving around the board, what you're trying to do is move away from wherever you start, 
grab an artifact and get back above a certain line. And if you get above the line with an artifact, even if you die, you can score points. If you die below the line or you die without an artifact, you're not going to score any points. And that remains true for the first few games of Clank Legacy. That basic thing of having a deck of cards, producing buys, moving around, getting an artifact and getting back is all present within the the game. However, there's also a huge storybook. And at the beginning of each game of Clank Legacy, you're going to read a set up a prologue and it's going to set the story for you. This is what's been going on in this area. So obviously when you first get there, hello, you're newly arrived. This is a new area. You're faced with a board that doesn't have that many routes on. Okay, here's some places you can go to. Some of the board areas, as well as being the standard places in Clank where you can buy things and move around, have got storybook numbers in them, like a uh, fighting fantasy, you know, choose your own adventure sort of a thing. And when you go there... You go to the storybook, you open it up, and things begin to happen. Spaces will appear on the board. Spaces will change on the board. Cards will come into the deck that's available to you. There will be patrons who appear will start giving you missions. There will be uh, starting things that you can acquire. You start to get a role within the company, and so on and so forth. And they will bring out more story points around the board. And over the course of several games, you'll go in and out from your base, the board will develop, you'll hit these story points as you go through, and you're attempting to do various things. Now, in Clank itself, you're just trying to score the most points, generally by getting artifacts, buying other things, defeating some monsters, and building up your deck. In Clank Legacy, yes, you're trying to win, you're trying to score points. There are also other ways in which you're going to be called, in effect, the most value employee of the month, which you may or may not know what those goals are. You can try and pick up some ideas. So it, might not, it won't be who scored the most points usually. It will be who's got the most gold or who's moved around most or who's done whatever because I don't want to do too many spoilers. So there are different things pulling the group to follow the story, to unlock, to unlock the board, to get ahead of the rival companies trying to do the same thing as you. And the board... And the story develops as you go through, as you might expect with these legacy aspects. Do you have any questions, Sean? It was actually quite difficult, Ronan, to... And I don't know what your thoughts are on this game, actually. Most of the games I've, I've known previously what sort of your general thoughts. I don't have a clue what you think about this. The only negative things I could see, really, were that people were saying that they've... They've got these two elements. You've got the clank base game, and then you've got this sort of legacy element. And some naysayers, I say, they've just kind of pasted on the legacy, and it's it's not as intertwined as it, as it could be. It's not as seamless uh, as maybe some of the other legacy games are. It's just clank and a bit of story. How did you find that? Did you do you felt they did that element well, and it felt clever, or did you feel like it was a bit jarring? I think they did it really. That's generally what people are saying. <laughs> I think that you kind of might have to chase the story a bit. So on occasion, if, if you're playing just to win each individual game, as if it's a game of Clank, I could understand that you're not going to get the most out of the story elements because if you're just going in to grab two artifacts once you've got a backpack and then get back out again, the game requires, I think, a bit of input from the players in terms of, oh, okay, I want to go and visit these story areas. Oh, I'll go and visit these story areas. I'll go and visit these story areas. Now, the problem with it is is that I can't really tell how cooperative the game is supposed to be because there's a winner to every game. 
and there's a most valued employee. And when you start off, it's actually pretty easy, right? You're going to get it, you're going to get some artifacts, you can get back again. As the story develops, it gets harder and the level of cooperation required between the players in order to successfully achieve the story goals is increased. But I don't know what we're aiming at because I don't know if I'm trying to score the most points each game or become the most valuable employee or am I just trying to make our whole franchise be successful or I, I don't have an end goal. Yeah, so it feels like you're kind of wandering around a little bit aimlessly just looking for clues together. And then there's, when, when a clue gets sort of revealed and when people know what the end goal is, is that revealed to everybody at the same time or is it just that? Oh, point? yeah, yeah. No, it's not, it's, like, it's not like a clue. You're not looking for anything. There's stickers on the board that say, right. if you go here, something will happen. So you, you go there and you read it out to everyone and then every single one of them, it does something. Like changes something, introduces a card, puts stickers on the board, makes new things available. It, it, that is sort of the big hook to it. It is the constant dopamine hit of like an app or something that yeah. I've never played another legacy game that gives you as much legacy stuff continually, 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 flowing all the time, all this new content. So do you find that everybody kind of doesn't, really collect any any certain type of like points or gold or whatever you or do you think people gamble oh, i might as well get a rake of gold because i've got the opportunity and hopefully it's going to be gold is going to be the target this game yeah that's where i'm a bit lost because <laughs> sometimes it, it explicitly says this is what's going to be most employee but sometimes it doesn't and uh as in any game of clank one player going off and playing their own fiddle and annoying the dragon will accelerate the game for everyone. Now, you can do that deliberately in Clank itself. In this one, if you do it and get back and you're stitching up your mates, you might win in terms of points, but you might... I don't know whether you're losing more than you're winning, if that makes any sense. Yeah, you could maybe losing more in the legacy element and not... Yeah, yeah. That, and, and that again, that's where I like... I, I don't know. <laughs> this, I, I like to review a legacy game partway through because this is the experience I've had in playing. Yeah, it's nice to go back and look at legacy game when you finish, but sometimes the Denim One doesn't give you the full story. You, know, you forget about what it was like playing through it. So right now I'm feeling slightly aimless. There's plenty of things to do. I just... Yeah, I'm just going to say it again. I don't know where I'm going. Um, I will have to say, because I mentioned Acquisitions Incorporated, the theme, by the way, some of the stuff when you do unlock it and the stories and stuff are genuinely funny. But thank God it's a legacy game because I don't have to read those out again and again and again. They, they would only work in a legacy in, game. Yeah, yeah, right. That was it, funny. Yeah. One and done. And I did say right at the beginning that I, I did hear that this was quite accessible in terms of, of legacy games. Did you find that? Did you find it was accessible, easy to get into and... Sort of easy to sort of immerse yourself in that world. The first game is just when you first start playing, it's literally clank on a very simple board. Right, gotcha. It just starts coming. It just starts hitting. It's like there's another thing. There's another thing. There's another thing. All small, all easy. All okay. Okay, I know what that is. Okay, I know what that is. Okay. Certain areas on the board become more perilous, or certain towns will develop, or uh, there's lots of different things that can happen. Right. You you start meeting characters 
who give you things to do, quests to do, and then you get options of are you going to do it for them or not? And you're like, well, are they a good person or not? And then you might meet their brother later on and you're like, hold on, both of you sound dodgy, but you don't like each other. Which one is the good guy here? And things, you know? I still don't know if you like it, Ronan. <laughs> if you like Clank, get Clank Legacy. It's the best way of playing Clank. If you're up for a contained, fun deck builder with variety and constant changes, which you know is not going to take 30 games to get done, you're going to get a full story in about a dozen plays, and that appeals to you, go for it. I am enjoying every play, but I'm enjoying every play for the novelty. I'm enjoying it because I want to see where it goes. I'm eager to play more, but I don't think this will ever be my favourite legacy game. Okay, so I suppose the question that sort of will will help me decide whether I'm buying it or not, Ronan, is would you have bought this game now that you know what it is and you know what Clank is, given that we both got rid of Clank after a certain few a few plays, very similar thoughts on Clank, would you have bought this game? Yes. There goes the Christmas list extending again. <laughs> <laughs> so the last game we're going to review in this episode is Space Base, a 2018 release designed by John D. Clare and coming from AEG. The theming behind it is that we are Commodores of a fleet of ships and we are going to build more fleet, use vessels to spread our influence and become an admiral. And how are we going to do that? We're going to start off with a board with 12 starting ships and you're going to have an income track, a money track, and a points track on that board as well. The ships themselves, and by the way, this is this is a dice game. You're going to be rolling dice at some point. I should make that clear. And the ships themselves have two parts. You have a blue, which is your active actions, and you have a red, which are your passive actions. And what that means is... Ships that are on your player board are going to be for your turn and you're going to activate them on your turn and the red side of them is when you replace those ships, they're going to tuck under your board and you're going to be able to activate those on everybody else's turn. So we keep talking about turns. So what do you do? You're going to roll two dice and you're going to either choose each of them separately or you're going to... get the total sum of them and you're going to allocate them to one of your ships to score points earn money to change the rules lots of things some of them even need powering up and you can add power up cubes to those ships then after that you get the opportunity to buy a ship card and place it as i said onto one of the spaces and each ships and each of the ships are numbered between one and twelve and they have to go in that respective space And as I said, the card that's already there has to go behind the board and that becomes an option for other players' turns. On other players' turns, it's exactly the same thing in that you're looking at what the other player has rolled and you're choosing each die individually or using the sum total and you're going to get your bonuses from from those cards that are tucked underneath. Once a player hits 40 points, the the game ends and it's as, as simple as that. I was coming into this, Ronan. We both didn't like Machikoro. I'd heard that this one was a game in which players who didn't like Machikoro did like this one. So that's what drew me to this originally, Ronan. A simple dice rolling, build up your engine, build up your points board game. 
It's a curious path you took to purchasing a board game. <laughs> it really is. I really, really is. don't like that game. Well, this game's a bit like it, but better. Oh, great. I'll get that in. But you really didn't like the other one. I wanted to like Machikoro. I liked the the ideas behind it. I just didn't think it worked. I felt it was unfair and just a bit, bit, miser- a bit of a miserable game, Machikoro. It just made me upset. Good <laughs> I'm a delicate flower. We've talked about this. <laughs> okay. So I had heard good things about Space Base. I'd heard the Machikoro impressions, and I wasn't that excited to try it, to be honest with you, because I heard good things about Machikoro as well, and it was bad. And, <laughs> and some other games which are similar to this, and I'm like, well, then my first impression of it, possibly second, because it was out on the table, and I thought, yeah, it looks kind of basic. You know, there's nothing that exciting about what I'm looking at here. Rachel said she liked the look of it, but I wasn't, you know. My second impression then would be the rule book, Sean. And it wasn't great. It wasn't great. For for such a simple game, anything that needed a little bit sort of more than it works like this. A little sort of, oh, but if this Oh, no, happened. it works like this would have been great. If they'd done that for everything <laughs> in the game, it would have been very handy. That's what a rule book's intended for. The exceptions to the rules are either just not there or in weird places. And you kind of, sometimes you have to make a guess, and sometimes they're just in an odd place that you're never going to think to look. Like how cards charge up to then, yeah. when, okay, so job, but when, then when can I use them? And things like that, we're like, why? This, is, this doesn't need to be this complicated, I'm fairly sure. It's an odd rule book, it's a very strange rule book. It is. It is best to put us off, but we worked it out. I said that from first impressions, looking at the table, that I wasn't wowed or anything like that. I was like, okay, it's kind of standard. In use, I was very happy that it looked so standard, and I was happy that it looked like that because it was very clear once you worked out the rules what everything did, and the iconography is big, and you can see importantly what roles are important to the other players. Adding that, as you like to say, element of theatre to your own role, <laughs> if it had been Roman role size iconography, and I had no idea what you had on your board, it would have lost a lot of that impact of, oh, please don't roll a nine, Rona. But I rolled a nine. Sean's got 28 gold out of me, you <laughs> son of a... <laughs> so having not been wowed by the looks, they ended up being more than just functional, but actually adding to the fun of the game by being so so good yeah i mean that that was my next point is that you can immediately tell what rachel wants what ronan wants and natalie wants from their roles just by the the placement of the cards and the even just the build up of the cards you don't need to necessarily know exactly what they're getting from each of them it's easy enough to find out but just to know that if Ronan has six cards built up or on his number five space, like the red cards behind the board, I know I really don't want to be rolling anything that can make up a five. So, which I continually did for Ronan. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, really, I agree 100% Ronan. Really easy to see what is going on. And, it, and it's crucial because you are always involved, Ronan, aren't you? You're, there's no downtime in this game because everybody's role matters to you. And not only that, everyone's role comes around so quickly because the actions you're actually doing are very simple. It's, I get a bit of this, I get a bit of this, I get a bit of that, I do one by right, let's move on. And, and that keeps it flowing. And in fact, everything about the game keeps it flowing. It's easy to see that there's a clear market out there and it rolls. But the 
the very clever thing about that buy mechanism is the fact that whenever you buy a card, you spend all your gold. That's yeah. it. It's all gone. So there is a nice timing whereby if someone is attempting to save up to buy something big, you can see they're attempting to save up to buy something big and they're no longer you know, developing every single round. And it, it's like, oh, hold on. If, if I don't buy something this round, I might miss out on rolls. But that expensive thing will be great if I can get the be the first person to get there. And it's a very, very simple rule, but it's a very clever rule that I, you know, I sort of, I can't, it must be in other games, but I'm not sure I can remember it being implemented so effectively and so simply. And the the carrot on the end of the sort of fishing rod is there for you to go up to those ships as well, isn't it? And it's not they're not massively wonderful improvements, but they're enough in this short, quick game that you, you really do want to get some of those bigger ships because they're going to start giving you sort of five points instead of one point or nine money instead of five money. And, and it's just getting those onto your tableau and sort of eking them out. Now... One thing I've noticed about this game is that there is a nice arc to it, but at some point it does turn into almost a race and you have got to choose a, you've got to choose when you're going to sort of go on those point, the point grab rather than bringing cards in and, and getting money into your, into your, onto your board and B, watching the other players to see when they make that break or when when they're sort of gearing themselves up to make that break. And you can't, as we found out in the game, you really can't let anyone go too quick, too far away. I mean, it's always a race, but it's yeah, well, yeah. a race. But the roles at the end are much, much more vital than the roles towards the beginning. Yeah. Because at the beginning, you're kind of, I'll get a couple of bits and I'm going to build up. Where the time you get to the end, everyone's going to have crucial areas, or you should have a crucial area whereby, right, if an eight gets rolled now, this is me. I can make this final strike and make a huge get kill in here. So that is where the arc of it works out. And it's not that at the beginning you're not making decisions. You are making decisions. You're trying to group things. You're trying to go for, I'm going to absolutely load down on fives. You're limited by what's available in the market. So sometimes you're just like, well, that's the only one I can take. But it very much builds up and builds up to a sort of pressure point whereby, right, boom, now everyone's grabbing points because this is going to be over very, very quickly. And the next nine dice rolls are where all the excitement's at. And it is exciting. It is, definitely. Just to go back slightly, Ronald, something I've just remembered, actually, is um, I, I kind of like the comparison between... and It's not like... There's not big routes to take to victory, but I do like the comparison because you can play the maths game and in that, like you're rolling two D6s. Generally, the the numbers like six and five and four, you're going to be able to make those up and, and threes and whatever you. You're going to be able to make those more often than you're going to be able to make like the 12. The 12 is obviously going to be, need a specific dice roll to be for you to be able to get to the 12. But the 12 offers massively more reward than the one for instance so i think you can you can gamble and shoot for the moon or you can play play the the percentages and try and do eke it along that way and i kind of like that i like that you can shoot for the moon and you can do something a little bit different and you're not locked into right let's everyone stack out the number four space number three space not a 12 though right 
<laughs> well, but if you if you did get a bit lucky with the twelve, you could really, really. One in thirty six. <laughs> Why, like, like, go for the eleven. It's one in eighteen. It's like literally twice the chance of that coming in. Don't right, go for just because I'm stupid. Mm, never a true word. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're right. And again, that adds to it. And I think one of the things that we underuse that I would use next time is that you've got that ability whereby if I roll a certain number, it triggers a, a certain number to the side of it. And what I was thinking in my head when we finished, I only got to play this once, Sean's played it way more than that, is that, do you know what I want to try doing is trying to build up, let's say I want to build up the nine really strong, but then have cards around it that direct into the nines that an, an eight and a 10 and a seven would all push into a nine. And you have that ability to sort of really not just make it a real random, but you can also start then start stacking the cards in your favour as well. If you do really want to build up the 12, Sean, if you need to build up the 12, at least put a movie on one in the 10. So if you roll a 10, it becomes a 12. That's all. Yeah, yeah, movie, yeah, as you said, or a movie a movie on one in the 8, 9, 10, and 11. Like, perfect. So every one of those <laughs> rolls is a 12. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There are things you can do. To, to make the game more interesting and more productive for yourself. So, again, another plus for me for this game. Brandon, would you like to sum up on Space Base? Well, I would. Oh, good. So, this is one of the games that has been described as quick and fun and uh, best in its class sort of thing. And we've been across a couple of those. You know, they're quick, it's quick, it's fun, it's light. This is quick. This is fun because it's interactive, because it has a proper arc to it, because you're always interested. And on my Christmas list now, Sean, is Space Base and its expansions. And the reason and the expansions are because I enjoyed this. I could see me get into a point where, okay, I've played this now, so I want to see what the expansions bring because that base system is so wide open for clever development that I'm actually I'm really intrigued to find out what else they've done with it. So Space Space is a definite hit for me. Very good. Yeah, again, for me, massive hit. Um, Natalie likes it even more than I do. The game's really easy to get into, well, after you get past the rulebook. <laughs> um, you're always involved, no downtime simple and easy decisions but there's lots of them and they're 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 coming thick and fast all the time yeah the theme is a bit mm, but there's a nice arc to the game it's light it's fun it's a bit random and swingy but that kind of fits in with the the whole ethos of the game anyway so the space base is a double hit for the game pit right it is a double hit for the game pit it it surely is now Shall we talk about what's arrived into the the pit of late and see see what might be coming up in reviews later? You, you've mentally not given me time to decompress there from all those <laughs> reviews. Like, I was going to say, well, that was a series of completely contrasting reviews, Sean. I think you should say that, Ronan. Okay, I have now. Should we move on to what's arrived in the pit? Because it's Good idea. Okay, thanks. <laughs> right. I've got the best cousin in the whole world. Did you know? What's cousin Sue bought you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, nothing recently. But my cousin Sean, very Ow. kindly, finally produced finally. my my birthday present. It's three months late. Let's not talk about that. You got some presents on your birthday as well. Yeah, you're a good boy. If you are a long-term listener to the game pit and you cast your mind back, you will know that a few years ago, I would not stop talking about Yido and how much I love it. And it's like Lords of Waterdeep, 
plus, plus, plus with some meanness and a lot of interaction and backstabbing and incredibly funny and long and a thinky Euro. And Board and Dice went along and made Yido Deluxe Edition. And because I own Yido, I was like, I don't need to buy that because I already have the game. But it would be nice to have. Sean came along for my birthday, treated me as a surprise, turned up with a massive box one day, and there we go. The Yido Deluxe Master Edition and now sits proudly on my shelf. And you're a lovely boy. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I think we might have covered it in our first ever show. At least it was first or second. But we don't talk about the second one. But first or second. Uh, I don't know, mate. If you say so. Yeah, it was in my I, top 50, you know, games of the year. I remember you waxing lyrical about it. I remember the Yido design has got in touch with us um, after That's that. That's true. And, that is true, yeah, Thomas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we got to meet them at Essen, two really good guys. That's actually um, true. Yeah, Yido, I've only played it the once and I really enjoyed it. I played it with our friend Steve who absolutely hated it. And it kind of, it, it ruined the experience a little bit for me because I felt so bad for him. But I, I really liked it. I thought it was a really good game. And uh, if I had more people regularly to play with, or, or Ronan didn't own it, I would own it. But he does, so I don't need to. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's the issue now. I'm looking at it again, because really you want four or five players for it, and that's not going to happen for a little while yet. But it's yeah. one, two, whatever. You know, for my birthday next year, hopefully, or wherever it might be, when we, we're able to gather again, I can say... Yido is coming out and that's going to be one of the celebratory games we have when we're back to normality. Okay, some more things rocked up. Uh, A little game, Mysterium Park, which we've played already. It's basically Mysterium. It's very slightly different. It's themed around sort of um, a carny... Circusy, circusy thing, yeah. yeah. Which the timeline of it, I'm a bit confused by. But anyway, <laughs> and and there's been a, a death at, at the circus, so it's quite cool in that some of the areas that it can happen and some of the suspects are quite close to each other. What was funny was that the the vision cards are not particularly related to the circus. That would have been really hard if they were, but they are literally like a random set of cards that are not don't feel very linked to the whole right. circusy theme. Yeah. I understand why, because it'd be hard if everything looked the same, but also I was a bit like, mm, you could have pulled something in there. Anyway, it's Mysterium, it's quicker, it's played over six rounds, it's almost exactly the same rules, and we played it for Halloween. Caitlin's a huge fan of Mysterium, and we all like it, and it's fine, and it's much more portable, so if we needed a portable version of Mysterium, we now have it. And yeah, yeah it's good. a nice, nice production. Lovely. Two much bigger games have turned up. One I bought from the shops and one was a Kickstarter. The first one is Stygian Society, Mm. which is from Kevin Wilson. It's a diceless dungeon crawler, but set in like sort of steampunky-ish times, I think. Yeah, I was having a sniff at that when it was on your table when when I last visited. Stop sniffing my table and don't let yourself into my house again. (laughs) Listen... If you stop me sniffing that table, what will I have in my life? (laughs) All the other things you go around sniffing illegally. It's from Ape Games. Because it's different. Because it's a twist. I I was like, oh, I'm quite interested. You know, something sounds different. You're like, oh, I want to see how that works. And the final one is a Kickstarter literally arrived today from Awaken Realms. We're kind of Awaken Realms addicts. And Etherfields has just rocked up. And they are, they just, they're so good at, just producing a game it's just 
as a physical thing to have, it really is quite special. And if I note, there's loads of extra content in it that we didn't expect would be arriving. Saying the first wave, there's a thing for their next game, including the dog tags um, for ISS Vanguard, and they're just they're a smooth company. So very weird dream field game. We're trying to survive through horror dreams, but looking forward to trying Ether Field, Sean. Those are the four games that have arrived in the past few weeks in this house. You have got three corkers too. That may not be corkers, I don't know. <laughs> well, I've I've got your copy of Paris arrived. Ronan, <laughs> Ronan laid dibs as soon as he found out that I had this. So um, it's actually at his house now. I let, I let him play it first, it. and then I said, give me that. <laughs> <laughs> so, I yeah, I got it. It's the latest... Uh, Kramer, is that how you say it? Kramer and Kiesling? You say however you want to say it. Man. I always used to say Kramer and Kiesling, but apparently it's not. It's Kramer and Kiesling. And, yeah, set in Paris. Very, very simple set of rules. But uh, one of those that is, is kind of greatest than the sum of its parts rule-wise. And I've, I've played that. And before the lockdown came along, Mr. Jude came along and played it with us. So uh, I'm not going to say much more because I fully intend to review it. Hopefully Ronan will get a couple of games under his belt as well. So we'll bring that to you very soon. What else has arrived, Ronan? I talked about Parks in my 2019 Best Of. And uh, I, I admitted that I hadn't played it. But I did give it the Art Award. And Parks has finally arrived because I backed it when they when they did the expansion. Good job we got the art reward because it wasn't going to win anything else. <laughs> I've never played it. I didn't. <laughs> you, you guy. <laughs> yeah, it's arrived. I'm interested to give it a go. I'm, not, well, I'm looking forward to giving it a go. And the last of the three is uh, it's kind of a it was an obvious choice. I'm not sure if I'd have bought it without the theme behind it. And it is uh, Zombicide. Again, I love Zombicide, but I've got enough Zombicide. But it's Night of the Living Dead. And it's obviously the first of the uh, the famous uh, Romero films. And being a big Romero fan and a big sort of zombie fan from, from that era, it was something I just felt like I, I kind of had to own. And uh, yeah, that arrived. And apparently it's getting, it's getting some good reviews. You can play it in two different ways. You can play it Romero way or classic Zombicide way. So the Romero way, the, the characters aren't as powered up as they, they would be in Zombicide. So no chainsaws and things like that. So it's very much a survival horror game. And uh, then you can go to classic Zombicide and you can go out and just beat the guts out of the zombies. So, yeah, they're, they're the three games that have arrived for me, Ronan. Has he been the Premier League's best second-choice goalkeeper in the past three seasons? Romero? <laughs> what, the Man United yeah. keeper? <laughs> Third-choice third, now. Third-choice. Can't even, can't even get on the bench. He was the best second-choice keeper in the Premier League, and now he's third-choice. Uh, <laughs> what did he do wrong? Anyway, who knows? <laughs> Have you been sniffing at anything, Ronan? You're talking about Kickstarter, aren't you? I have backed one and sniffed at one, and there's one coming out tomorrow that I'm very excited about, um, which I was going to leave for next episode, but sure, I may as well mention it. It's the new Chip Theory Games game is coming out. Oh, I saw that. Yeah, I saw it on, uh, Burn... on those. So I haven't read it down, so I wasn't going to talk about it. Burn Cycle, is it? That's something like, yeah, something like that, yeah. It's about uh, machines taking over, isn't it? Wow. 
it's written from the machine's point of view, so they're f- trying to free their AI brothers and sisters, I think you'll find, <laughs> from the oppressive humans. There's definitely a programming element to it, and you're actually given a set of certain things that must be in your program, and then you set it up. It's fully, fully co-op. It's modular. It's from chip theory games. You know it's going to be different and interesting, and at least well-play-tested. And so that is definitely going to be significant around it, but I haven't looked fully into it because it's not launched yet. I might mention it again next time. The two I have probably looked at, Grand Austria Hotel, Sean. I played it a few times a long time ago, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, and then never played it again. It's in, it's in my garage somewhere. I had never played it until recently, and I really liked it. And I mentioned it during the old Alma Mater review there, and it's a fine Euro. It's as good as everyone said it was. I completely lucked out and got some ridiculous combos going and smashed mm-hmm. it, which was great. And... <laughs> The uh, expansion was just on Kickstarter. Let's Waltz, which has got like four modules to it and all sorts of crazy different stuff. And I was like, yeah, because Rachel loves Grand Australia. It's one of the few games that she sort of is like considered to be her game that she has, and she'll teach it and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. So, is it is it still on Kickstarter, or is it finished now? I mean, you can ask these questions. <laughs> <laughs> never mind, never mind. Well, I've we'll backed it. <laughs> so. The one that I'm sniffing at, and I'm in, I'm in for a, a dollar at the moment just to get. Yeah, it bad yeah boy. I know, I know. Piggyback in is Endless Winter, uh, Paleo Americans, set in the Ice Age, and you're you're a clan, and it's a cross between deck building and worker placement. Actually, there's not that many worker placement spots, and what you do is you you go in with a worker, but you're going to power that worker up with cards. And how how much you power that worker up, it, it depends. It dictates how much of an action or how strong the action is that they're going to get in that area. There's four sort of very distinct areas where you're going, and you're either going to get more cards into into your hand. You're either going there's, there's this monolith that everyone's constructing, and you build it. You get points, and you get resources. And there's other areas you get resources. And, and yeah, and it, it seems really interesting. It's got the artwork. I, I don't know if it is the Miko, but very similar to the Miko's artwork. And it looks really good. Loads of expansions in the Kickstarter as well. So I'm, I'm sniffing at it. I'm not fully on board because I'm, I'm worried that the four worker placement areas are going to be restrictive. And I suppose it would depend on how good the deck building element of that game is. So I've got that. Have you have you seen anything of this one, Ronan? I have seen plenty of it, Sean, because it's proper hot on BGG at the moment, <laughs> and it has been backed a lot. I have a theory. Now I know that Johnny Pat Canton is one of the designers, and that's going to get people interested. I do have a theory, though, that the success of the other Miko artist-drawn games, artisted, artist, what would you call it? Illustrated games. Mm-hmm are persuading people to back this because he sort of comes with a good glow off of their like of the West Kingdom and uh, North Sea games. Yeah, yeah. Because when I looked at the actual gameplay, I really was turned off. And then I looked at um, some of the comments. Now, obviously, we look at the comments. There's good and there's bad in there. But what I was getting through is a theme of long downtime a really long game in itself, it being fiddly and the fact that the theme was both 
inaccurate historically and massively tacked on and just wasn't there at all. <laughs> yeah. I think it was the downtime that really yeah, got to me because it was mentioned again and again and again and that you literally spend 10 minutes doing nothing. Yeah, that put me off. I think I think the artwork is a big part of the hotness around this. I think, yeah, I think you could be right. I think that's one of the reasons I'm not sort of going in blindly. I think when you do take an action, that action has like three or four phases. And so you take the initial action, then you move down the step, you do this bit, and then you move down the step. And if you're the first there, you do this. And if you're the, it chains a lot of things together. And normally you'd expect that at the end of a game, when people are starting to really build their engine up, but this looks like it sort of automatically just has that. So yeah, I think you, I think you might be right. That's why I haven't gone all in. And the other game I'm, I've been interested in isn't a Kickstarter game. It's a game that's come out from Hobby World in Russia, and it's been given to all the reviewers. Well, I've seen like Tom Vassell's done a review of it. Rado's done a run through of it. So well, not all the reviewers. I don't have it. Important reviewers. Okay, right. Competent reviewers. And it it seems to be an interesting blend of worker placement again, as I talked about on uh, Endless Winter, but also in uh, auction sort of thing. So you've got a row of of factories and and you are bidding for those factories, but once you've placed your four disc on there, nobody else can place another disc of a four. So they, they have to almost go in second. But the people who finish runner-up get resources from that card. So sometimes you don't want to win the card. You need the resources to, in order to be able to do things later. And then once everyone's sort of either won the cards or got the resources, you run your engine. And there's a there's like a, a learning game and an experts game in that. You can run your engine with the learner game in any order you, feel, you see fit. But with the expert game, you have to place it in a certain order, and that's the way you're going to run it. Run it. So you have to think about your engine as you're building it and think really carefully about it. So it, it looks to be a really interesting game. And one of the, something that Tom Vassell said about it, he felt like it harkened back to games that were coming out maybe 10 years ago. That wasn't supposed to be a, like a negative remark. It's got new elements to it, but it just felt like an older game, and it kind of had that nostalgia bit to it as well. So... I did look around, Ronan, and this one has been picked up by Arcane Wonders. And hold on, are, hold on. Tom Vassell did a positive review for a game for that's a coming game. out from Arcane Wonders. <laughs> no! Rado liked it too, and a couple of other people really liked Rado, it. Rado, he's definitely removed from the dice tower, you're right. Yeah, <laughs> Neutral. And... So yeah, it's coming out in 2021, Ronan. Have you seen anything of Furnace? Have you seen any of these reviews I am talking about? I haven't seen the reviews. I've had a little sniff around. Mm. I have a feeling it might get Castles of Tuscany in that expectations will be raised too high on it. On the back of Aquatica from Hobby World, on the back of that board art, which looks cool, Mm. because it is a filler. It is a completely themeless filler. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The theme they've put on it is factories, which, you know, as a down record is saying, <laughs> the only theme you can think of is factories in a game which you're making resources. You're not trying very hard. <laughs> but it just hangs on the fact that that's a clever auction mechanism, and it does mm. sound like a very clever auction mechanism, and it does sound fun. The reason I'd be wary about very positive reviews initially is because it's how fun is it going to be after 10 plays? Yeah, that's my only enough. concern, and don't expect too much it's a 45 minute game yeah 
as long as you're aware of those things, I think it's very promising. Uh, also, we talked about Alma Mater having uh, not a lot of diversity. I think that's something that Arcane Wonders has picked up, that this one, it's, it's all white males. Because um, you're a character, you get a card. I didn't say that you, right. you because you've got a character with a special power, and they're all white males. So I think the arcane wonders are going to look at that and maybe maybe make it a bit more diverse. But if it tickles you, maybe one to keep a lookout for. You've got one more for us, haven't you? I have. I couldn't remember who the publisher was from, but I think it's Mythic Game Shores. Is he? <laughs> Do you think that now? <laughs> I think so. It's Darkest Dungeon, which, to the best of my research, is a computer game. I believe so. I haven't ever played it, but uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's a computer game, sort of dungeon crawly type thing. I don't know what give it it's called Darkest Dungeon, I'd hope so. <laughs> <laughs> if it was a goat sim, everyone would be very disappointed. Oh, hey. okay. You leave Darkest Dungeon the goat sim out of this. Um Yeah. Mythic are a funny little company nowadays, aren't they? They seem to be a bit all over the shop. I know they've still got a couple of projects waiting to get fully fulfilled and there's been some issues with replacements and there's grumbling. You never know how much this is because they've got lots of backers. So some people are going to come forward and say, this didn't go great for me. Okay. In terms of this game itself, therefore, I'm never going to be you know, straight in on this. It's got a lot to like. It's got a lot of nice-looking minis. It looks challenging, all the rest of it. But again, it's one of those where I've gone back and I've looked through sort of people who have played it and tried it in the digital version and all that. And one of the complaints is fiddly. Okay, one man's fiddly is another man's deep, and there's definitely the counter come back to it. But in terms of dungeon crawlers nowadays, you know, we we have a lot, and we've played a lot, and a lot of them are fairly similar. There might be slight variations on a theme, I tend to look at the AI just to see what the monsters are going to do, see how clever it is, see if it's going to be giving me unexpected challenges. And what people are saying is that the monsters in this are super powered. They're strong, but they act really dumb. And in fact, it gives you agency to make deliberate poor choices for the monsters. And not only that, if you don't make deliberately poor choices for the monsters, it then becomes too hard. And that's like a massive red flag for all the appeal of this and, and the cool look of it and the cool theme and the rest of it. If I have to play the monsters dumb, it really puts me off. Yeah, I don't like that in games. When I, I prefer something that says very sort of prescriptively, like the monster does this, and if he can't do that, he does this, and then give you like a, not a massive list of things, but I want, I want the monster to have their own AI and not... You go, well, if there's a choice, obviously he goes to the other side of the room and I steal all the treasure and get out. I don't like, <laughs> yeah, I don't like games like that. I, I feel that Mythic and Monolith, when they, when they were together, somehow they kind of corrected each other's faults. And I think since they've both gone separate, I, I, I feel like they've, both of them have kind of lost their way a little bit. They've both had a, a few misses and a few sort of, weird choices of games and mechanisms especially monolith with their um recurring components for games it just didn't work so maybe maybe they should come back together ronan do you think it's likely to happen no i don't <laughs> <laughs> now of course we're waiting for which one of them is going to bring be bringing out ragnarok will it be mythic or monolith it's mythic i believe 
that I thought it was monolith. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> we are on the pulse of gaming. It kind of shows you the, you know, the mess this whole situation is, though, doesn't it? A little bit, yeah. Mm, okay. Anything further for us, Sean, before we let these good people go? I don't think so. I think we're going to... We're already getting a bit of a head start on our games for the next review episode. I'm sure there might be a, a different type of episodes coming in between them, but we're definitely on the ball with our review games. I think we're going to go review and then we'll go back to a different one. That's my feeling. You're we'll the boss. We'll talk about that off air because it'll be incredibly boring. <laughs> Fair enough, boss. <laughs> right. Thank you very much, Sean. Thank you, Ronan. Thank you, everyone, for listening. You're very welcome. Oh, Sean, yeah. you've been asking for ratings. Who, who has? Me? You have, for the podcast. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, on... We, have tw- we had 29 on Apple Podcasts. Did we? And then I clicked on a different link grab podcast, and we have 14. Then I clicked on the French language one, and we had 21. Hey. And they're all English language. But I don't know how this whole system works, mate. Last time I checked, we had five, and as, as I no, said, no, no, we definitely got more than that. But none of them were like new, so yeah. I don't know what is going on. I was playing around with Apple Podcasts to make sure we were working on it because yeah, we got the issue with the account. And literally every different language we click on, we've got a different number of ratings, but they're all in English. All these ratings, <laughs> I just don't know. okay. We have a number of ratings of some degree or other. Yeah. Give us some more. <laughs> Put them somewhere. We'll find them eventually. Maybe in five years' I was years like, oh, there's 29. Sure, I must be listening to Sean. They're like from 2016. I'm like, why are they only on the Spanish language side? <laughs> I'm so confused. Help. Yeah, I think that's it. I think that's our whole outro done. Pretty much. Okay. Uh, we are proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there and to the Dice Tower itself for gaming goodness galore. If you wish to download the episodes... Just go to wherever you usually download your podcasts and you'll find us. But specifically, we're on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. We are on social media. If you pop along to Twitter, that's where we're most active, at GamePit Podcast. But we're also on Facebook and Instagram. If you wish to email us, we are thegamepitpodcast.gmail.com. Or you can come along to our Board Game Geek Guild and we're happy to answer questions there. We're both on Board Game Geek on a daily basis, so we will see your comments and we will answer. So, yeah, all that's left to say is thank you very much for listening and we will catch you on the Game Pit next time. Music by E. Aaron. Oh.